0: Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear stories from a Hall of Fame broadcaster who was the original announcer for the Texas Rangers, who called the Dallas Cowboys in the Super Bowl, and the legendary ice bowl game between the Cowboys and the Packers, and who found himself face-to-face with history just days after President Kennedy was assassinated.
1: And this reporter to my left said, Have you been charged with any and he made some statement, no, I haven't it then. And then he turned and I said, yes, you have. You've been charged with the murder of the president. And he paused and said, huh? And looked at me and I said, you have been charged with the murder of the president.
0: Welcome to Live at the Ballpark sharing stories from players, managers and coaches, writers and broadcasters about their lives around baseball, from the sandlots to the big league ballparks. Hi, I'm John Frost, and my guest today is Hall of Fame broadcaster Bill Mercer, who announced for the Texas Rangers, the Chicago White Sox, and the Dallas Cowboys. This is part two of our conversation. Thanks, Bill, for sharing about your life at the ballpark.
1: It's my pleasure and honor to be with you, John. I'm just uh, really thrilled to be on with you.
0: Well, in the previous episode, you shared about your early days of doing baseball recreations on the radio. Your two seasons as the original voice of the Texas Rangers. And before the Rangers, you called games for the Dallas Texans of the old AFL and later the Dallas Cowboys. Tell me about those days.
1: So there we had two teams, Mm -hmm. both playing in the Cotton Bowl.
0: Both (laughs) playing in the Cotton Bowl. (laughs)
1: All weekends or whatever. Uh-huh. If one was playing Saturday, the other played Sunday, or vice versa, <laughs> Sunday, Saturday, whatever. And we really had a great time. Meeting with the Texans, who were a bunch of the wildest, craziest football players I've <laughs> ever been around, was just a, a hoot every week. And, and there were always fights. But nobody drew. And no, not many people went to either game, which I thought was interesting because— I guess we had, you know, we had 15 or 20,000 out there. Oh, my gosh. Not very many, either either team. And that went on for, what, two years, three years. Texans won the AFL championship with uh, my good friend and North Texas ex-Abner Haynes, one of the key players. And then they moved right away to Kansas City. And uh, Lamar had that set up, so. But uh, we enjoyed Lamar Hunt. We would go out with him after games or before. We go out by a ice cream store and I said, "Come on, Lamar, Lamar, let's go in and have some ice cream." He said, "Okay, but I don't have any money." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we had a great bunch of media guys on this, and we said, "Lamar, we know you don't have any money, and we'll take you in there, you poor thing." <laughs> 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 so it was fun. It was really fun, and then and then they left and. Here come the Cowboys. By some hook or crook, they they hired me. But I was glad to get them. I mean, I mean, a major NFL number one announcer, that was great. Sure. So that's when I started in 65 doing play-by-play and stayed on until the you know, Super Bowl of 72 in the Rangers. And then I took the Rangers
0: job. I was just going to say cousin, that that timed out right with the the Cowboys surgence into the – the NFL championship game and the and the uh, Super right. Bowl.
1: That's right. I, mean, then just, I did the first Super Bowl in 72.
0: My God! They had
1: another. Yeah, that was my first one. Vern Lundquist, one of the truly outstanding young men of our time, mm-hmm. became one of the best basketball announcers or sports announcers on TV that, ever. He's a dear friend of mine. He was my color man, and uh, we had a tremendous run. Uh Blackie Sherrod before Vern was that for three years worked with me. Now while we're here at this point, I'll tell you that my greatest claim to fame in football announcing was the ice bowl game in sixty seven. Uh, I got a call that morning from the wake up at seven or eight, whatever, and she said, Welcome to Green Bay. Good morning. <laughs> it's thirty below zero. And that really gets your attention. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thirty below zero. Yeah. Of course by the time I got up and went out and curled around the outside for a quick look, and the wind was blowing out of the north at a great pace. It only it was just at twenty below zero. So that game took a lot of thinking about it because we were in a stadium where the press box was freezing cold. You didn't have any coffee, the water would freeze. I like to work with the windows open, mm-hmm. which is I probably would have tried that, but the windows were frozen shut.
0: Oh, my goodness. And
1: as we state, uh, the spotter for the uh, Packers and Blackie and I and my engineer, maybe some other guy, were in there talking. And we looked up, and the whole inside of the glass had frosted over. And we couldn't see out the windows.
0: You couldn't see the field.
1: Could not see the field. So this young man from Green Bay was being my spotter. He said, Oh, there's a gas station across the street. I'll run over there and be back in a few minutes. Get you some windshield the ice Oh, that's great. Well, it didn't, it took him about 35 or 45 minutes to get over that station you could see from the stadium because it was so blasted cold. But we used all three cans of that to get through the game.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Blackie and I said, everybody in Dallas has heard about this being cold. And I think, having some experience with talking too much about rain or talking too much about this on a broadcast, that we just play it straight. He said, that's fine with me. And I said, what you can do or what I can do about every quarter or every half a quarter is just get the temperature. Mm-hmm. So we'd go along and Blackie would say, oh, it's uh, 19 below zero now. And go on. Like, like there's nothing to it. Mm-hmm. And that was the way we handled it. And it really turned out, I was not really pleased with it. I was scared to death listening to it for a long time. But after I listened to it, it's it's a good broadcast. And it's straight up, you know, no shenanigans, just straight football. Mm -hmm. And it it turned out, I think, quite well. It was one of the greatest games ever played. Sure. According to everything. And uh, that last drive, and Bart Starr, engineered, was one of the most impressive I have ever seen in football. It was amazing. They didn't get an interception. They didn't make a fumble. And they couldn't be stopped. And, you know, you know what happened. But it was a fantastic game. On the plane going home, Don Meredith was sitting in front of me. And he was in tears. He was telling the guys as they came by this evening, it was his fault. And he lost the game and all this, you know, but. He didn't really, it wasn't all his fault. And one of the, one of the, my favorite plays that I've ever seen, when that's another reason, I you talk to that as a game that you might listen to sometime if you got a chance. The Cowboys were behind, and Meredith on some on 35 or 40 yard line set up his offense. Danny Reeves to wide to the left, two wide receivers either side. And he drops back, he looks to the right, and then he turns and Laterals the ball out to Danny Reeves. Reeves takes two steps to the left, cocks his arm and throws a pass downfield, and it's caught for a touchdown, the first touchdown for the Cowboys. One of the most beautiful plays in 19 below zero weather you would ever see.
0: Were you aware at the time that you were calling one of the greatest football games of all time?
1: Oh, no. No. You know how that is. You've been there. You're just doing the game and what if- what happens to it? The game itself was, is so great is in, in the conditions that they played in, and how they survived. Well, the way we did the game was perfect. I've had some friends of mine, who broadcasters, say, "And you didn't color it up or mess it up at all. That was just mm-hmm. straight football announcing, and that's what we wanted." And that, mm-hmm. no, I had no idea it was going to be that famous. I just was hurt like the Cowboys that we lost. But I also uh, admire the Packers for what they are, what they were at the time. Two very disciplined teams, mm-hmm. Landry's and uh, the Packers. Mm-hmm. Just a great afternoon. If it had been warm, it would have been unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Being so damn cold.
0: Well, before we move away from your sports career into a couple uh-huh. of other things that are just fascinating about <laughs> you, I can't. Let this time go by without asking you about the Dallas Sport Aurorium, and I mean, in in, in, the, in the conversations you and I have had before, you said there's not a day go by that someone doesn't mention to you about you announcing wrestling.
1: You know, that's really it's it's gotten a little farther apart now, but it used to be when I was retired, I'd get letters for them to sign. Would you sign your name? It's in the picture, would you sign your name? But every now and then I run into somebody who said, You did wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Yes, that was my hobby. <laughs> and the Sportatory in Dallas, which was a. Have you ever been there? Did you ever get to it? Oh, of course. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, you know what it was. It was sure. kind of a dump. Sure. But it was perfect for wrestling.
0: Basically and, a and, TV studio.
1: Yeah, that's right. Sure. And, uh, They had country-western. Willie Nelson would sing there every year. Sure. Okay, it was back in Muskogee again. This is when I had my first job, and I was doing baseball and football and basketball. Well, about a week or so after I got that job at uh, KMUS was the name of the station, they called me in and said, hey, Bill, once a month we have a wrestling uh, event at the uh, downtown auditorium. And I said, yeah, and uh, you're going to broadcast it. I said, I've never seen wrestling. It was <laughs> 1950, you know. I said, I've never seen it. Well, I take that back. One time going to a train station in Chicago, I saw it on TV, but I don't know anything about it. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. Knowing all the sports you do, you can, you can uh, figure it out. And go down there, because the guy who's in charge of it has a couple of wrestlers who are visiting, and they will show you How did the holes and all this, and you could talk it all over with them. So that's where it started. I had a legal pad that night, the first time I did it, and I had a description of each hole. So I'd look at the guy, and it said this and this and this, and I'd say, Oh, that's a such and (laughs) such. In a way, I was recreating as I sat there and watched it. But that's when I started, and I did it three years. And one of my best friends uh, who had moved on to another station, was going through Dallas and stopped into KRLD and was talking to some friends. And Wilson Shelley, the chief announcer, came up and they were talking. And He said, guys, I've got to find an announcer to do live television wrestling on Tuesday night. We don't have anybody. And my buddy said, oh, I know the greatest wrestling announcer in the world. You know how that goes. And he said, really? that good. He said, well, he is really good. So. I got a call from Wilson. So well, you've been uh, suggested as uh, having maybe some interest in coming to Dallas and doing wrestling live on TV. And I said, oh, sure. <laughs> the first I'd ever heard of it. <laughs> so I took the Katy train down, down to Dallas, audition reading various stuff and standing in front of the camera. And then we talked about how much wrestling I'd done. And he said, well, uh, I'll let you know in a week. So I said, okay. Uh, I figured I wasn't going to get it. So in a week he called and said, can you be down here in three weeks? And I said, yep. <laughs> I'm going to KRLD in Dallas in three weeks out of Muskogee, And I'm going to do wrestling of all things, not football, not baseball. not We used to do boxing, not boxing, wrestling, which I'd never
0: done. You could do it all
1: So I came down I was scared You talk about scared Now I was really scared to death I'd never been on television I didn't know how to handle it But uh, I had some time To sit around the studios And practice I even did a a newscast on TV Five minute newscast My aunt who lived in Waxahachie down south of Dallas Called me and said Bill, you need to relax (laughs) Well, I started out, and I guess I was okay, but I got better, and wrestling became uh, just part of my life.
0: Bill, you've covered so many amazing sporting events in your long career, so many that you've been honored with inductions into eight Halls of Fames, but perhaps the most significant moment had nothing to do with sports. Tell me about what you were doing on November twenty second, 1963, at 12 noon Central.
1: Let me back up a little bit. You know, we were expecting President Kennedy, and so we had uh, Eddie Barker was our news director, and I was doing the news uh, at noon. I came in early because I'd been all summer doing baseball, and then I transferred back to the news department. So I was producing and uh, the noon news, and everybody else was out covering Kennedy's arrival and all that. So I go ahead and do the. 12 o'clock news, and I don't know what's going I didn't know anything. I just finished up. Nobody brought me a note or anything. I walked back across the street to our newsroom, which was in a building behind the station, and the place was in turmoil. People were crying and yelling, and I said, what's going on? He said, the president's been shot. And, you know, it was like a somebody stuck a knife in your back. You just you just can't believe this. this can't, I said, no. He said, yeah. So for the rest of the afternoon, I was uh, on the phone answering uh, Boston. I kept Boston on an open line. Uh, They wanted to know if he was still alive and when to call him and let him know if he died. And we went down that all afternoon while the other guys were out uh, covering all this. They came back. Everybody was absolutely physically, mentally, and exhausted from all that uh, they tried to do to cover Something they they never had any idea how to do it before, you know. Just a, another story, but this is the biggest story of their lives. One of the first,
0: one of the first live broadcast of TV.
1: That's right. I was just coming to that. So all those guys were uh, having to do the, get the copy ready and edit the tape of the film. And Barker said, "Well, Bill, you're the only one that hadn't been working today." <laughs> <laughs> I've been there since 6 o'clock in the morning, but that's okay. I said, what's that? He said, want you to go over to the police station. We're putting a camera up in the third floor window, and our remote unit will s- send the picture back, and it'll be videotape. we would just gotten our videotape machines. This is brand-new stuff about uh, three weeks or so before, and then they'll send that on to CBS in New York. And I said, what am I going to do? He said, whatever comes up, you're a reporter, just pick it up. You're going to cover everything. So I went over there at 7 o'clock in the evening and uh, stayed until I uh, interviewed everybody I could see. At the beginning, there weren't very many out-of-town reporters, and I would see the DA or somebody head of this, head of that. And I'd walk over quietly and start talking to him. And the guys would look up and see me doing that, and they'd run over to listen. So that was how it started at 7. And then, of course, they, we had the capture of Lee Harvey Oswald, and they brought him in, and I got to see him. Didn't get to talk to him. By then, we had a several hundred, it seemed like, reporters from all over the country in there in that little space that we had. And that went on and on and on, interviews, everything. So then they decided at 1 o'clock in the morning they were going to have a press conference with Oswald. And those engineers, bless their hearts, moved those huge studio camera down into the basement mm-hmm. where they put people up on stage. And so they got that down there, and I was getting ready to go down, walking out toward the elevator, and uh, one of the detectives came out the door, and he said, Hey, Bill, i got something you might want interested in. I said, what's that? He said, we're signing the charge papers for uh, Oswald murdering the president. So he'll be charged this evening or t- first thing tomorrow. I said, oh, okay. I'll keep that in mind. So I went downstairs, and it was packed, of course. You've seen the pictures on them. And I was standing beside the KRLD camera in the back, and Lee Harvey was up front on the stage with the cops. And... <laughs> The <laughs> guy said, when we were talking about the book, he said, by the way, we didn't pick that picture because of you. We picked it because of the KRLD camera, because that's news going live for the first time. And anyway, it, it ended up that I was, came forward, kneeled down in front of Oswald and the other people on the stage. And a reporter to my left said they were getting ready to take him out and because nobody could make a question. Nobody could answer anything. And this reporter to my left said, have you been charged with anything? And he made some statement, no, I haven't. This is out of And then he turned and I said, yes, you have. You've been charged with the murder of the president. And he paused and said, huh? And looked at me and I said, you have been charged with the murder of the president. And uh, that's my second great, or one of my other great moments. <laughs> <My> <laughs> Just goodness. having been told that they were ch- signing the charge papers, and there it happened that I could say that with authority, with the facts. I wouldn't do that if I hadn't had the facts. And uh, that
0: was it. Well, to think that you were the one who said that to Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, all these yeah. all these years later, what's your perspective on that? That I mean, that's history of our country.
1: I don't think it's being in the place at the right time, I guess, and knowing what you can do. I, I've often wondered, I was... You know, at KRLD during the assassination, I was over here. I was doing the ice bowl game. Just being at the right place at the right time. And there I was just covering this thing for KRLD and happened to be in the right place right below him at the right time. And I knew my facts. This was not something I'd tell him if I didn't know it. And I thought, well, okay, I told him that. I didn't think any more about it really until Mm -hmm. somebody would call me and say, man, we heard you. My son called me from North Carolina and said, Well, I heard you tell Dr. Oswald. So it's uh you know, how does it happen? I don't know, there's circumstances. I don't know.
0: My goodness. It's history. You were history, you were right there, you saw him face to face and the entire world changed.
1: Yeah, it did. You know, we, we wrote that book when the news went live and and we promoted it ourselves. We went around the libraries and bookstores and in various towns, we did Bob Heffer and the rest of us all working to do this. And every time we would uh, be there, somebody would say, well, there's a conspiracy to kill him, that's for sure. And we we said that there was no conspiracy. We had just everything. This is 30 years later. But they're still looking for a conspiracy that somebody killed him, he didn't do it alone. And finally, I came up with, I said, well, let me tell you, let me ask you, if you're hired... Or you're told you want somebody wants you to kill a prominent person. You're not going to do it just for fun. You're going to ask get some money, right? Because they're going to have to pay you a lot of money to go out. Particularly this man that they're going to kill. So then when he kills him, you don't want him caught, the shooter, because it might implicate the guys that hired him to do it. And I said, So let me tell you what what I would think about here is getting out of town if I were the shooter. But the hire Oswald came down the stairs, bought a Coke, went out the front door over on the left side of the building toward Elm Street and caught a bus, <laughs> caught a bus. Mm-hmm. And the bus didn't move. So he got out of the bus and went over and caught a cab. And the cab took him over to Fort Worth to his little apartment. Cliff to the main street in Cliff. He changed clothes, put on a jacket, put his thirty-eight pistol in his pocket, and he walks down the street. He is leaving, or he's going to meet somebody. As he walks down the street, though, he was the only person they couldn't account for at the Texas Book Depository. So his picture was already out with the cops. Tippett, the local policeman, and he was driving along and looked at his picture and looked over and saw him, and cops are so trained to do that, he realized this is looks like the guy. So he stops, and instead of walking out around, he leaned over the car and uh, was talking to him, and then he started walking to the front of the car, and Oswald shot him eight times. There were at least a dozen or more witnesses to this. So there was no question who killed the officer Timmett. Then down the street, walking along, going in the office to get out of the sight of cops. But there was a manager of a store there who was standing outside, and he saw the way he was doing. And he thought, that's a strange thing to do, run into the entrance of other places when the cops came by. But then the last step was the biggest one. Oswald ran across the street over the Texas theater, and did not buy a ticket. He ran in without paying. The man called the cops, and uh, Jerry Hill and Arch McDonald came down there and captured him, and that was the story. How about that?
0: How about that? It's amazing, amazing piece of history. And so you, were, I, you were right there.
1: And I, As I tell the person with the conspiracy theory, I said, what would you do if you were going to get out? And You shot somebody, and you had to get out of town together. get it. Get away. I don't think you'd walk down the street, Main Street, no clip.
0: Well, you have a book coming out. It's called Oklahoma to Okinawa. Tell me a little bit about uh-huh. how this book came to be.
1: I was in the Navy, as you probably know, and I was in World War II. And I served on a uh, ship called the LCIg 439 and G was for gunboat. The LCI's had been changed over to be uh, the supporting and leading attack ship at uh, invasions when i got it we got out of the navy and the ship was uh, taken down and uh, turned to scrap all of us went home but charlie my good friend who was the other sickleman had the idea of let's have some reunions some of the guys started getting ill we had reunions in charleston south carolina which was a beauty I took them to San Antonio so they could see the real Texas, and they just loved it. Mm-hmm. so we we traveled around in various places. We went to washington d c and finally we had our we realized that everybody was aging and didn't want to travel anymore, so we had our last one. and they we were all talking about it. and uh, my book had come out about when the news went live or our book came out. and some of the guys said hey, he's got he's writing books. And they all said, you write books? I said, well, I've written a couple. And they said, well, you've got to write a book about us. I said, what about writing a book about you and us? Because you're going to write a book about our ship, what we did, and uh, mention every one of us in the book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I said, well, that's going to be a little bit of a chore. And they said, well, you can do it if you wrote that other book. You can do Irish. Ours is just a little book. Mm. So that was what I promised them. I said, well, I'll certainly try. I don't know when I'll get to it because i got too much going right now. So that was my promise to them. Someday I would write a book about the ship and its journeys and mention everybody on that had been on board or mm. was on board. So I had the entire ship's log from day one to the last day. And I thought, okay, i got nothing to do now. I might as well start it. That was probably eighty something then, mm-hmm. and now I'm ninety six. So it took a while. It was about eighty. I was about eighty five, I guess. And I started going through each page every day, writing down the names of the sailors and what was happening and what was happening to them and everything. And I went through that thing. It's about uh, oh, nearly a foot deep. It was really big, you know, from 1943 through 1947. Sure. So that's what I did for several months.
0: So tell me again, the name of your book and how can people get it?
1: Okay. It's called Oklahoma to Okinawa 18K 18 K or 18,000 miles on the LCIG 439. The second world war two naval memoir, Bill Mercer. Okay. It's in hardback and it's in paperback. Oh, and you can get it. <laughs> At Amazon. We printed it through Amazon. There you go. So just look up Amazon. You can look up the name of the book, or just look up Bill Mercer. And I have uh, this book listed, plus uh, When the News Went Live, and another one called Play by Play, which was a history of broadcasting
0: in sports. Well, I might have to buy three books. (laughs) Is that right? (laughs) You bet. (laughs) I absolutely want to read more about this. This has been fascinating. It's It's just a story about a guy and the uh, 65 men and officers
1: who all got mentioned by the way i finished my promise to my shipmates even though some of them most of them are not here and i hope that some of the uh, families will read the book and see their husband or father's name in it, grandfather there you go and enjoy it
0: there you go you fulfilled your promise Hall of Fame broadcaster Bill Mercer, this has been so fun for me. You've been so gracious with your time, taking me all the way from World War II to the Kennedy assassination and all your accomplishments as a sport broadcaster. And thank you so much for sharing about your life at the ballpark.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it
0: tune in each week for a new episode hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends life at the ballpark is produced by jim governali project manager is paul adams and a special thanks to round rock express play-by-play announcer mike caps and bill brown who's on the houston astros media wall of honor for introducing me to their friend and mentor bill mercer i'm john frost sharing stories of life at the ballpark